So it's great to be with you guys, and by God's grace, the sun has risen, and there will not be a reflection off of this bald head into your eyes. I'm grateful for that. Uh, this is a great place. We have really been refreshed being here the last couple of days. My wife and I drove over uh, from where we're staying currently in West Virginia, um, so no offense there. We left the state a long time ago. Um, we did take the prettiest portions, but you guys have a pretty portion here as well. Uh, so we'll be going back to West Virginia later today, and as John mentioned, um, my family and I, we actually have three kids that we left with their grandparents um, for the weekend, and they had a great time, but we're missing them, they're missing us, we're going to get back to them later today. We have spent the last 10 years in South Asia, specifically the very central part of India, and we've been grateful to be a part of what God's doing among the nations uh, we just, a number of years ago, even before we went, we just sensed God calling us to give our lives uh, to bring about the obedience of faith for His name among all the nations, and specifically God called us to uh, South Asia. And we live in a context where it's considered the highest concentration of lostness on earth, uh, meaning population density, unreached peoples, all that together it is just a concentration of lostness. And we often consider there's lots of lostness around us here, but in South Asia, specifically in India, there are identified at least 1,145 unreached people groups in that region that have little to no access to the gospel. And so that's the context by which we find ourselves, and we've been serving the last 10 years, and will continue to serve as the Lord calls us and continues to lead us over there. And so we also desire to have a deep partnership with uh, this church here. Uh, we have been in conversation even uh, before you guys launched. And since you guys have uh, launched as a church or relaunched as a church, uh, we have been in continued conversation. Uh, you know, I think Zul messages me about every other day about, hey, when can we come over? When can we plan a trip? And I love it. I love the eagerness and excitement. We also share that eagerness to partner with you. Uh, so uh, we're excited about the opportunity to finally be here and talk about how we can advance God's kingdom together, right? And we're just also grateful. My wife and I have just been uh, talking about this the last couple of days. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but your leadership has just been so generous to us this, the past couple of days, just made this time for us to be refreshing. You as a church have partnered with us already, uh, financially partnering with us and furthering God's kingdom and we're just really grateful for the way that you guys have been praying for us. Every Thursday, I think it was, Zul was <laughs> sending me messages uh, about how can we pray for you. And I know you all have been praying for us and our national partners, so really just want to uh, thank you for that. So uh, that's my introduction for us. I want to really get into the text and, and share with you a text that has been very important for us, understanding our call, understanding what God has called us to do, and really an example of how I believe all of us ought to live our life with the Apostle Paul. I know you've been in Revelation the last probably seven years of tribulation, uh, it seems like maybe, but um, we're going to try to tackle the book of Romans in one message, right? So, uh, so you can either congratulate me afterwards or, con uh, you know, uh, try to make me convicted of that. I don't know whichever is appropriate. Rebuke me afterwards. But uh, I'm going to give it my best shot. We're going to launch into Romans 1 uh, this morning. Okay, so if you have your Bible, turn there. I'm going to read the first 17 verses, and we'll make several references to the book of Romans as we're looking at this idea this morning. Okay, 
So Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant, I'm reading from the ESV version, so hopefully that's helpful to know. Uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power and according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus have been, so, so far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as along with the rest of the Gentiles. I, pay attention here, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, I am eager to also preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Pray with me, church. Father, we're grateful this morning to hear articulated before us by the Apostle Paul, a missionary writing to a church that he seeks to partner with for the advancement of your kingdom, to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of your name among all peoples. God, challenge our hearts this morning that we may also sense the obligation that Paul sensed to be a servant, to be set apart by you, to preach the gospel to the Jew and to the Gentile, to the wise and the foolish, that all peoples may be on our heart to, to hear the gospel. So, Father, I pray that you prick our hearts and align our hearts this morning with what you have in store for us and what your plans are for others to come to know you by the grace that we have also received. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, I want to draw your attention to verse 14. We see here that Paul's ownership of the gospel creates in him an obligation with the gospel. See, he's been a partaker of the gospel. He mentions the grace that he has received, the apostleship he has received, and it is to bring about the obedience of the faith among all peoples. So it's because of this ownership that he senses this great obligation that the grace he received, he is now a debtor to anyone who has not received it also. That's how he interprets the grace and how deep the unmerited favor that he's received from God. It is now a debt to him so that others may also hear this same message 
that he has partaken of. If we fast forward all the way to chapter 15 of the same book, Paul gives us insight as to why he's even writing this book. We often treat Romans as this theological treatise. It is a missionary-centered book written by a missionary to a partnership church so that the gospel may go on to Spain. Okay, so this, the context of this entire book is Paul about to go to Spain, which is considered, at that time, the ends of the earth. He's writing to them to in- increase the partnership and recruit them, essentially, to be a part of God's global mission of his kingdom advance in that place. Much like us coming to you uh, this morning, inviting you all to come be a part of what God is doing among the nations, specifically India, along with us, and continue to be partnered with us to that end. My prayer this morning for you as a church is that you would sense the same level of burden as individuals to bring about the obedience of the faith among all peoples, specifically how you can be more involved in that as individuals and as a church, God's global mission being advanced. Now, I just want to acknowledge also that all of us here are coming to this church probably at different places right now. I realize that maybe there are some of you who are trying to just understand right now what you believe. Like, who is Jesus? Do I really believe this is true? You're wrestling with doubt. You're wrestling with these things that you're hearing. There's some of you that might be hungry to know more about God's Word. Maybe you're a new believer or you've just kind of been rejuvenated to follow God in a new way. So this is exciting for you to hear. But then there's others of you who have been in faith maybe for a little while and you've been slipping into just being self-absorbed. Uh, honestly, when I come back to, to America for the first few months that I'm here, I kind of wrestle with being just self-absorbed, trying to indulge in all the things that I've missed out on, eating too many hamburgers and, and, and trying to treat myself to all the things, excusing it because I've sacrificed to Jesus. But if I'm not careful, I can become self-absorbed, have a sense of entitlement that you know I can do this because I want to and I have the, the ability to do it. Maybe you've become self-absorbed lately and you're paying little attention to what God is trying to teach you or lead you in. And maybe there's others of you who are just reeling from all the challenges we're facing in this world. COVID has hit you hard. Things in the news that you're reading has just really shaken you. And you're struggling to gain a sense of purpose of what is my life about? What am I giving my life to? Maybe that's you this morning. And I hope wherever you are, wherever you find yourself this morning, that all of us would grow in a greater ownership of the gospel this morning, whether it's placing your faith in Jesus Christ for the first time, or whether it's waking up, or whether it's continuing to press on in your sanctification process, that we would be further committed uh, in in growing in ownership today uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as I mentioned, that's our big focus this morning. Ownership of the gospel creates obligation with the gospel. If you don't remember anything else that I say this morning, I hope that you remember that phrase and it pricks your heart and be thinking about it in these three specific ways. We must grow, uh, we must specifically uh, pray relentlessly, okay? That we must pray relentlessly for the lost, for the nations, okay? Uh, that, That God would prick our hearts in such a way that we have that same sense of urgency Paul had, that he has been a partaker of that grace, so we pray for those who have not received it. And we're a debtor until they have heard the gospel. We must give sacrificially. We must give like we believe this is the most important investment that we could ever give our finances and our time to. 
And we must go willingly. We're willing to go whenever, wherever God calls us at any time so that we may bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. And I really hope for us to, to flesh this out this morning to answer two questions. Uh, and and we'll, we'll have some points below that. But I really want to talk about, uh, first, what does it mean to be unreached? You've, I've used the term there, and you've probably heard this term before, unreached peoples. Or UPGs, if you've never heard that term, we sometimes call that in missiology or missions uh, language. UPGs, unreached peoples. Uh, so I want to answer that question this morning. And you've probably uh, thought about this yourself. Maybe you've heard this. I often hear this uh, from friends and family. And they'll say something like this. Why do you go all the way around the world? We have lost people all around us. You know, We have unreached people. My neighbors are unreached. You should just stay here and, and partner with us here. And that's true. There are lost people all around us. Uh, but there is actually a difference in the terminology that I'm using between lostness and unreached. Okay, So lostness are people, lost people are those who are far from God but they actually have access to the truth should they want to find it. There's churches around the corner. There's a Bible in their language. There's Caleb on your radio. There's God TV. You know, there's any number of ways in which they can find the answers to the the questions that they're facing or the, the fact that there is a God. But an unreached person is actually far from God, but has no access to the gospel. Okay, so no opportunity for them to hear about Jesus, even if they wanted to know more about him. So specifically in my context, I mentioned uh, before, uh, in South Asia, there's about 2 billion people. Sorry, globally, there's about 2 billion people that are in this unreached category. But I live in a place where there's about 2 billion people also. And there's the specific target that God has assigned us to, or that our organization has asked us to steward, is about 260 million people. Now, in this, that's a lot of people, I know. That's about, uh, you know, uh, 80% of the population of the U.S., something like that. And uh, so God has, has, has put us in that position to steward the work in those areas and work with multiple teams and multiple nationals. In that place, 0.8% of that population professes to know Christ in any way. 0.8%. In that same population group, there's estimated to be 172 different UPGs, unreached peoples, that are unique to themselves. They either speak their own language or they relate differently in culture. They won't intermarry with other groups. They're unique to themselves but have no representation of the gospel. Maybe no church, no one ever engaging them, no believer uh, actively sharing the gospel among them. And we're talking about entire groups of people. Some of them are over 100,000 people in population that have little to no access to the gospel. They would literally have to walk days and maybe even weeks to even find access to the gospel. Put yourselves in their shoes for a moment. Just think about what it would be to want to know more about the truth of God but have no access to it. Think about, this is what I've said before, no K-Love radio stations, no written copy of scripture in your hands. No church in your village or even believer in your friend's circle. So unless something changes you, if you were in their shoes, would likely live or be born, live and die, never hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the reality of unreached peoples. 
But let's talk about the biblical reality, diving back into Romans, for the unreached peoples. Okay? First, we see uh, from God's word that the reality is you have actually knowledge of God. Every person on earth, the 7 billion people that live today, everyone who's ever lived has access or has knowledge to God in some way. Pick up with me in verse 18. I'm going to read uh, three more verses. Okay, Romans 8, sorry, 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of this world. In these things they have been made in these in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We've all been given, all people on earth have been given the common grace of general revelation. God has revealed himself in some way through the order of creation, how he has created all things. Takes me to a story all the way back to college for me. Uh, I was with a group of believers uh, that we, we, were, uh, we grew together in community through Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. And there was one specific guy that was there, and he came to faith late in high school when a buddy of his took him to a place called Bear Haven, West Virginia, and they were rock climbing together. And he looked over this place in late October. It's a beautiful area. We used to rock climb there as well. And he, overlooking this beautiful valley in October, like all the colors, you know, seeing the sunset, he was just wrestling already with, uh, with who is God, what is the purpose of my life. He looked over creation. And God convicted him in that moment that he was true. He was real. He created all things and had a purpose for his life. God revealed himself in creation. God does that for certain people at certain times in such a way that makes it known to people, yes, I'm here. The rocks cry out. His, all of his creation screams his name. And if we're willing to hear, people will be drawn to the truth about who God is throughout the, through the creation he has given. All of us are without excuse. But then flip that on its head. Oftentimes, this idea of general revelation becomes the excuse by which people don't grow in the truth. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? You know, I don't need to go to church on Sunday. I experience God on the beach. Or when I go out fishing or hunting, like in creation, that's where I really experience God. I don't need to be in community. Well, actually, they're taking the knowledge of God and abusing it in such a way that that's an excuse for them to not seek the truth. They suppress the truth instead and ascribe their own meaning, as we'll continue uh, to talk about here in just a minute. And I would love for God to just like do this more, kind of what he did for Brad, uh, my buddy who was in college, who came to faith. I would love for him to like write things in the clouds, you know, like go talk to Craig about Jesus, you know, or go to Risen Church that you will hear the message. But he doesn't actually choose to do that. Like he has created his creation in such a way that it, it, in and of itself it speaks his name. But I would love for him to do more of that, but he doesn't. Secondly, we see that we have all rejected God. You have rejected God. Romans 1, 21 through 25 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, 
And foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God, them, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. In other words, we pay little mind to the author of life and the creator of all things, and we begin to just create and ascribe our own meanings and our own desires about how we can worship or what we can do with our lives. Literally, we steal the glory of God and try to make it our own. Okay? If you were born in the context that we serve, just trying to put you back to where we serve in South Asia, if you were born in that place, likely the way this would work out is that you would just ascribe whatever you see to whatever idol you want to create. Literally, they'll have an idol for the God of the sun. They'll have an idol for the God of the sea, and so forth. So you would literally create uh, these idols that you would worship. Rather than further seeking the truth, you just ascribe your own meaning and create your own idols. Now, I'd love for God to go all Toy Story on uh, some of these people sometimes. You know, I, my, I'm in the Toy Story uh, world right now. My kids are small. They love Toy Story. And so, like, there's this moment in, I think, the first one where Woody just kind of, like, acts like he's a dead doll. And then all of a sudden wakes up to Sid and, like, just tells him, like, you need to stop torturing all these toys. I really wish that sometimes God would just, like, wake up the idols and be like, hey, I'm not really God. Like, Jesus is real. You need to just quit doing what you're doing. I wish God would do that. But, again doesn't ride in the clouds. He doesn't wake up the idols to give glory to him, though he could. He could make the stones cry out in his name, but he chooses to do something different. Even last night, I was, uh, we were renting bikes, and we interacted with someone who uh, is from Turkey. Uh, so we rented a bike from somebody who just came here recently from Turkey, and God just brought to my heart, just like, hey, just ask him if he's ever heard about Jesus. He'd never heard about Jesus. He actually said, no one has told me about that. Like, like, Jesus was a that, like an object. He didn't really see him as a person. So I asked him if I could share the gospel with him, thinking that he would. Most of the time in, in other cultures, people are more friendly to receiving the gospel. He didn't want to hear, hear anything about it. He's like, oh, maybe later, but not now. Uh, like, I'm going to come back and rent bikes again some other time. Uh, one hour yesterday was enough for me. Um, but we all reject God either, either overtly or passively, don't we? In America, we may not be creating our own idols, but we oftentimes take something about God's good creation and ascribe our own meaning and purpose and reject God altogether. But to pacify our own selves, we create some sort of object for worship or things that we give our life to. We reject God. Also, what it means to be unreached is you stand condemned before God. We're not going to read all this passage, but Romans 1 uh, 18 through 320 speaks specifically about this. God goes, or Paul goes through great lengths in these first three chapters to explain how all people are justifiably condemned before God. You might have heard the question asked before, but wait a minute, Craig. What about this innocent person in Africa who is very genuine and they've just they're they're innocent. They've never heard about Jesus. Well, actually, what God is teaching us in these first three, three chapters that, well, if there really was that innocent person in Africa that had never heard about Jesus but has, was also sinless, well, of course God would be merciful, 
But God's word actually points us to the reality that that person really doesn't exist. See, we have knowledge of God. We've rejected God. So we stand condemned before God. I hope we're feeling the weight of this reality for ourselves, but also for the global humanity. And fourth, you've never heard the good news about how God, about how you can be saved by God. There's a difference between lost and unreached, as I've mentioned already. All right, a lost person has this knowledge about God, has rejected God, stands condemned before God, but has vast opportunities to respond to the gospel. But an unreached person has no access to the gospel. Listen to this selected portion from Romans 3. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received. Basically, they never heard this message, had no access to the message that God created us for a relationship with Him. But in our sin, we are separated Him and we continue to reject Him. We're stuck in a state of brokenness that we cannot get out of ourselves. But God made a way through His Son, Jesus, for us to be reunited in this perfect relationship with God that we would be able to share for all of eternity. It only requires us to repent and believe that what Jesus has done through His death and resurrection, that we would have eternal life again and we would escape this this brokenness that we're in now and will continue to be in. That message they have no access to. And this is why it's so essential for us as a church to engage in strategies that we prioritize the preaching of the gospel among all unreached peoples. It's, it's essential for us as churches to prioritize that as an act and a part of what we do, literally becoming the DNA of who we, who we are as churches. You guys are reading through and studying Revelation 7, or sorry, Revelation is a book. Hopefully, uh, Revelation 7 comes to mind here. I just want to write it, uh, read it to you before, uh, to, to re- for recall in your minds. Revelation 7, 9 and 10 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and to the uh, the Lamb who sits on the throne. This is God's vision. This is what God is doing right now in all the world. He's bringing about salvation for all peoples. And this picture we see in Revelation 7 is a future reality of what we'll all enjoy for all of eternity together. A multitude of people from all nations, tribes, languages, and peoples. Literally all the ethnic groups, all of the people groups will become reached one day. Amen? You with me still? So that is... The future reality that God gives us a picture of in Revelation, He gives us a commission in Matthew 28, just before Jesus ascends up into heaven. He commissions His disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Specifically, that means all the ethnic groups. Pantata ethne. What's ethne sound like? Ethnic groups, right? Not geopolitical nations, but ethnic groups, all peoples 
are to become disciples of Jesus. God has commissioned us to this. And the reality that there are unreached peoples, something like 2 Peter 3, 9, should convict our hearts that why, you know, in the context of what Peter is writing there, is that people were doubting that Jesus is going to return for his church. That the church was worried that maybe Jesus is, maybe that, that hope we had that Jesus will return one day for his church, it was starting to fleet. And he was like, listen, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Jesus is coming one day. Okay? He's going to take us into his kingdom, those are who, who belong to him. But he's not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. Maybe it's slow to you, right? Maybe you'd like to be taken into his kingdom today because you're struggling with whatever, and you know that that will be better. That longing should be there, but it not, should not cause us to doubt. But he's patient towards us, toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you realize that Jesus wants to come back today? I really believe that. And bring us into his kingdom. And we can just enjoy that community forever. I really believe that. I long for that. But he's patient. He's waiting. Why? Because not all have received the opportunity to repent. There are large groups of people. There are large geographic areas in the world today where they have no witness. God is waiting. God's patient for us to go and take the gospel to them. See, it's attributed to Carl uh, F.H. Henry for this phrase. Maybe you've heard it before. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And that's the reality for many of these unreached peoples. Aren't you glad, just think about it for a minute, that people were relentless in praying for you and sharing the gospel with you at some point if you're a follower of Christ today? It, it might, if you just think for a minute how many times God was trying to get a hold of you before you came to faith in Christ. Maybe he's getting a hold of you today and you're like, maybe I need to profess faith in Christ today. But think about it. I mean, I can think of multiple times when God either through someone shared the gospel or pricked my heart through looking at creation, whatever it may be, convicted of sin, multiple times. I've heard it said sometime that this takes like usually seven to ten encounters with the gospel for someone to actually believe. That's on average what it takes often for someone to uh, profess faith in Christ. But the reality is you have had multiple encounters probably in your life that you can trace back to, but these folks who are in unreached context, they haven't had that opportunity yet. I'm grateful for the youth pastor that for nine months prayed with me over and over again. Maybe for you, it is uh, you know, a, a friend in college. Uh, maybe it is a grandmother that's been praying for you. Maybe as you're thinking back, it's a co-worker who invited you to a church or even this church where you got saved. But I'm afraid that for many people in my context, the good news isn't getting there in time. And where we live, that 260 million people population group, of that 5,000 people, more than 5,000 people die every single day and step into eternity. And if the numbers are true, and what we just talked about is true. The majority, if not all of them, are probably stepping into eternity, having never had access to the gospel. Stepping into an, an eternity apart from Christ. You guys are studying Revelation. And the reality of what they're stepping into is grave. So let's just talk about here for a few minutes. Why must we, if, the, if we now understand what it means to be unreached, and what God's plan is in the midst of that, for them to hear the gospel, why must we 
relentlessly pray, give sacrificially, and go willingly to the unreached? Well, first, because their knowledge of God is enough to damn them to hell. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. All have a knowledge of God, all have rejected God, all stand condemned before God, but have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned before, there are 2 billion people in the world today that fall in this category, at least. Specifically in my area, 5,000 people step into eternity apart from Christ every single day, if the numbers are true. Two, because the gospel of God is powerful enough to save them for heaven. Amen? The gospel of God is powerful enough to save them for heaven. Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I want to share a story about uh, one of my good friends who came to faith in South Asia. His name was Seth. And uh, it was like any other encounter for me initially when I went out to share the gospel. I actually had a volunteer team with me. Uh, this was a number of years ago. And uh, we went out as a volunteer team. We just prayer walking, looking for people we can engage the, with in the gospel. Uh, met this uh, guy and a girl who were just looking over a lake, very similar to what we're seeing here. And we just engaged them. My favorite tactic, this you can use this, is, hey, will you take a, a selfie of my friends and I? Uh, we're just enjoying the scenery here. Will you do that? That's kind of my conversation starter. Uh, because, um, you know, sometimes people don't like to be engaged with or whatever, but they'll always take a picture uh, for you, okay? They'll always do that. So that's my, kind of my entry into conversations for you. You guys can use that. So I did that tactic. I just gave him my phone. and said, hey, will you take a picture of us? And then I struck up a conversation with him. I shared the gospel with him. Uh, he was a uh, moderate, you know, Muslim background uh, guy uh, in his early 20s. And I thought the gospel presentation was great, you know, but I was actually not all that expectant of what would happen. Just because I've interacted with uh, folks of this age group and uh, socioeconomic status, and, and uh, usually it takes a lot of encounters for them uh, to come to Christ. So again, he, didn't, he was very respectful. Uh, I actually thought it was going well. He invited me to come play soccer with him. I like to play soccer. So I was like, oh, great. I'll have multiple opportunities uh, uh, to share the gospel, believing in the power of God uh, for salvation, but at the same time just kind of wrestling with this. You know, I'm just trying to express the fact that I didn't have a whole lot of faith. So, uh, shared the gospel with him. For a year, the guy ghosted me. Like, wouldn't return my texts. Uh, wanted to play soccer with him. I was praying for him. For whatever reason, for me and a few other people uh, that had inter interacted with him, we just weren't able to forget about this guy. God put him on our heart to pray relentlessly uh, for him. But he <laughs> ignored us, like avoided us. Found out later that he thought I was super weird for telling him about Jesus, you know? <laughs> so he avoided me because he thought I was a weirdo. Well, that's not the first time that's happened. But the, 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 the story comes around about a year later through some things happening in his life. Uh, just I invited him again to play soccer. He finally said yes. And that reconnected an opportunity for us to share the gospel, me and a few of our teammates, a number of times. And somebody who I honestly didn't believe would believe, believed. The power of God is in the gospel. It's not in my ability to articulate the gospel, because I told you before, I think I did a pretty good job that night. <laughs> didn't make a 
a difference. But God was working in him through the truth, and he wasn't able to forget it. For the power of God is in the gospel. Let's not forget that. Not in our abilities or whether we think they'll be receptive or not. God will work through our proclamation of the gospel. Third, because the plan of God warrants the sacrifices of His people. The plan of God warrants the sacrifices of His people. I just want to give you a portion from Romans 10 here, 14 and 15. How then how, how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Listen, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? You guys remember the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? If you read your Bibles, maybe you're familiar with that. If not, Cornelius is a true worshiper of God. Not a part of the Jewish family. Not currently a child of God, but is a true worshiper. He wants to know the truth, essentially. God speaks to him and says, hey, send people for Simon, Peter. He'll listen to him. He'll tell you what you need to know. Okay? So Peter goes, preaches the gospel. Him and his household believe. That is the plan that God has for unreached peoples to hear the truth. Not to write in the clouds. Not to wake up idols to speak to them. But for his risen church to go and to proclaim the gospel. And they may hear and believe. And for their entire generation to be changed. That is the plan of God. To send people like you, or for you as a church to send people from your church to go to Cornelius's so they may hear. Because there are true worshipers. Maybe not all of them are like Amir who don't care, who, who would prefer to just stay in a state of rejection. Maybe if we continue to pray for Amir, he'll be like Seth, who will want to hear one day. The guy that I pray, uh, preached the gospel to or tried to preach the gospel to last night. But there are Cornelius's in the midst of many peoples like Amir's. And that is the reason we must be willing to sacrifice greatly so that more may hear. Missions is not just some program that we use within the churches to motivate people to give, you know. It is actually the priority for every church member to evaluate how we can be involved. If this is really true, if the gospel is true, everything we're talking about is true, it really ought to shape all of our activities and motivations and how we orient our life. Starting with how we pray for the lost and unreached peoples around us. We're some of the wealthiest people on earth here in the U.S. I don't know if you know that or not. I mean, when we talk about poverty, I feel like we have no context for poverty unless you've been outside the U.S. But if God has given... Just think about this for a minute. What if God has given us this tremendous wealth and blessing as a church, as a nation... Not so that we can continue to press the limits on how much comfort we can find. But what if God has given us this wealth so that we may leverage it towards the fulfillment of his commission. So that all people may hear. Just think about that. What, what if that's why he has given us such tremendous blessing? I really believe God doesn't really want or need our money. He doesn't need it. But he cares about our hearts being involved in his mission globally. And he gives you the opportunity to be a part of that. Are you sensing that obligation, that desire, that deep debt towards those who have never heard that you would want to give sacrificially so that others may hear? I'm not sure what God's calling you to. Whether it's to pray more, to give more, 
or to go more, but some of you do need to say, I'll go. Some of you need to say, I'll go on a short-term trip or a mid-term trip or maybe even a long-term, you know, however long the Lord will call us to, but the gospel is worth the sacrifices of his people. And lastly, because the Son of God deserves the praises of all peoples. He is worthy. He alone is worthy. There's no other name given among men by which people can be saved than Jesus Christ. There's no other name. He is worthy. His sacrifices warrant the praises of all peoples. And it should be our prayer that the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb that you guys see a vision of in Revelation, may receive the reward of all of His sufferings. And that is the nations. That is the multitude of people worshiping Him from all tribes, languages, locations. So let us be people who pray relentlessly, give sacrificially, and go willingly. It's our obligation, but it's also our privilege to do that. You know, I'm going to be giving some tools and some challenges to your leadership of how you can be doing that specifically, about how you can be praying specifically for our team and for the, the unreached peoples in our places. Some of the villages, I would invite some of you that would pray daily alongside of us for this work. Um, your church also is partner with us financially in some ways, and I would encourage you to continue to give sacrificially to this church because they're involved in the mission globally. I would invite many of you to consider maybe it's time for me to go, short-term, mid-term, long-term, that God would continue to create in you the ability to be involved in what he's doing globally. I just want to end with this. By God's grace, us and our team in 2020, uh, we were able to see a number of awesome things in a COVID year. And God has been, over the last 10 years, been doing an awesome work um, through our team and through specifically our national partners. Our strategy is that we train as many people as possible in what we call the core missionary task, basically evangelism, discipleship, church formation, and leadership development. So we saw 1,925 people profess faith in Christ last year in our area. Okay, Praise God, right? So most of, that, most of that was through our national partners, the 600 and some odd national partners that we trained uh, and our national partners trained in these things. We saw 766 people follow up in believer's baptism, which if you don't know, that's not something where we can just kind of openly go and do. That's usually like 4 a.m. meetings at the river, so nobody sees you type of thing. It's covert. It's hidden. They used to have to come with the excuse of we're going to a picnic, and they'll pack a picnic, and they'll quickly baptize them and then have a picnic, um, which is usually the Lord's Supper, and then they go home, you know? Uh, that's the context that we're serving in. 766 people of that, those professed believers are walking in obedience. We praise God for that. 135 new groups formed, similar to what you guys call community groups. These are groups of people, not from a church that has been uh, doing, uh, doing uh, worship corporately together, but these are new groups that are starting, and they're moving into discipleship together, and they're the birth of a church, the birthing of that. So there's 135 new groups that have formed in 2020, and in addition to those 135, we saw 28 healthy churches form. Healthy churches mean uh, they're more than just a Bible study that's growing into a church. They have identified themselves as a church. They're operating in the functions of a church. They're baptizing their own new believers. They're giving the Lord's Supper. They're, they're identifying local leadership. So praise God for that, right? 
that's touching 59 different unique people entities. Okay, 59 different people group entities are in that work. So we praise God for that. Okay, but at the same time, we sense just like when Jesus was saying, I'm closing with this, when Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 10, the fields are white with harvest, but the labors are few. We really believe that is a drop in the bucket in the context of where we live and what God is planning to do. We need more laborers to continue to be involved in this work, both from this church, from God's global church, but specifically from the local partners that we're working with as well. We believe that those laborers, by and large, will come from that harvest and will continue to go into that harvest. But maybe there's some of you who will come alongside of us into this work and be a part of what God is doing among the nations. Let's pray.